Lord, thank you again. We just rejoice that though we are so undeserving, that it can be well with our soul, that we can have life eternal only through the shed blood and resurrection of your son, Jesus. We just glorify him this morning. We glorify you. We just pray that all that we would do would honor your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated.
Good morning again. Just a couple things to remind everybody of. Uh, Musicians Fellowship, uh, Saturday, July 16th. So that's, I think, three weeks, two weeks out, three weeks out, three weeks, right? Three weeks yesterday. Uh, so it'll be at our home in Spring Hill at 10 a.m. Uh, we'll have directions as we get a little bit closer. But uh, if you're a player or a singer, uh, you're invited out. We'll have fellowship. We'll have music. We'll learn some songs together. We'll share a uh, meal together. Uh, so please come out and join us for that. There will be a sign-up sheet in the back. So please join us for that if you can. Uh, something Pastor Brian wanted me to mention to all the fellas is we're going to have our first I think this is our first church-wide only men's retreat, uh, November 3rd through 4th. That's a Friday night, Saturday, at uh, Deer Run Retreat in Thompson Station. Uh, so is there a sign-up sheet? There is. Yeah. There is a sign-up sheet for that. Um, so, again, it's the first time we've, we've been able to do something like this. Maybe it's the first time we've had enough guys just at this church to where we could really all get away and do that. So we just encourage you all. We just encourage all, everybody, uh, all the fellows, to, to come out to that. Let's have a good time of fellowship and, and time together. So, uh, again, sort of out there in terms of the calendar, but mark it for November 3rd or 4th or 4th, 5th, whichever. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Uh, please sign up as well for Hope Force uh, Disaster Relief Training. Sign-up sheet remains in the back for that. We will get closer to having a date, which we will have that soon. Um, the next Sunday shootout, uh, it's going to be August 7th, so about two months out um, at the Hafner Range in Spring Hill. If you're a shooter and would like to enjoy some time with us out on the range, you can do that. Uh, please sign up for that as well. All right, that said, why don't everybody stand, uh, say hello, make those around you welcome. Well, good morning again. Happens to the best of us. 
Well, good morning again. Hey, let me just share a couple other quick things, uh, just really fast. Um, uh, Julie just found out about, and we wanted to open up to um, uh, the young adult women. There's going to be a young adults women's conference at Calvary Chapel, Knoxville on July 9th. And it's an overnight, right? 9th, 10th? Okay. Uh, if you didn't hear that, uh, the ladies would drive up on Friday stay over, and then the conference is on Saturday, kind of an all-day thing, and that is on July 9th. We will have that in our upcoming email bulletin. Uh, we'll put it on the website and all those kinds of things. If you would like to know, um, know more about it at this moment, you can ask Julie while she's here today, but we will put more information in our email as well, and uh, I assume there will be a sign-up to you. Oh, and the theme is on your identity in Christ. That's a great, great theme. That's a, that's a good thing to spend some time on. So uh, young adults, I think, which would be like... 18 to 25 or something. So, all right. And then uh, also, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we're not going to start a group called the Old Women's Group, right? So that that wouldn't be right. Hey, after last week, I'm going to start kind of measuring my words a little bit. And what what we what things we start and don't start. Speaking of which, uh, we actually are going to start our home groups in the fall. That's going to be coming up in uh, I believe September. And uh, I'm not necessarily saying the women's groups aren't going to still have something going on. We're kind of working on that. But but the home groups, we're gonna um, we're gonna have information on that coming up. Right now, we're in the praying stages about a few folks that we'd like to ask to host those. Uh, we're gonna have couples host them. And uh, based on the interest in having these groups, which is where the sign up sheet in the lobby comes in, uh, both for the men's retreat and the home groups, we're trying to get a sense of interest in this to make sure that we do them. If nobody signs up for it, then we're not going to have it. So, you know, but if, if it turns out where we have people sign up, uh, for example, for the, for the home groups, um, when you sign up, we're going to ask you to put your name and also the town you live in. And that's going to give us a sense of where, uh, we're going to set those up. Uh, if we end up having them. So we'd encourage you to sign up with your name and your town. This is just interest. It doesn't cost you money or anything like that. We're not going to make you pay something. But we do want you to let us know that that you'd be interested in going if we had one uh, in your area. So, uh, And then the men's retreat, same thing. Right now we're asking you to sign up as an interest thing. We will have to guarantee 25 guys. I don't think that's going to be a problem. But sign up just so we know that you are interested in going to our men's retreat. If it turns out where nobody really wants to go, but I've already been hearing that a few guys want to go, so I think it'll work out really great. But just let me know that because uh, we have to get some details together for that. So if you would, and that those sign-up sheets are on the table right outside of the sanctuary, just past the little kitchen area on in the foyer, so you can find those there. Um, all right. Well, why don't you stand with me? We're going to read from Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5, as we begin our time in the Word together. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Let's all read this together. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. How true that is, Father. We thank you that we find our rest, our hope in you. We find that you are the fountain of truth. Uh, Truth springs forth from you. When Jesus said to sanctify us by your truth, he added to that that your word 
is truth. And so when we turn to the scripture, we just pray that you would feed us to our very souls and nourish us. Even as it says in Hebrews, the word of God cuts deeply. And so, Father, we just pray that it would find its mark deep within us and accomplish that purpose for which you set it forth this morning. We know it doesn't return void. And so we pray that you bless it as we open uh, these pages this morning. Thank you for calling us to a time and place such as this, that we might shine the glory of your grace, that we might be your testimony, your mouthpieces, your hands and your feet in these days. And so, Father, we pray that you bless this new endeavor, this new study we're going to begin today in this letter from Paul to the Ephesians. And we pray that it would be fruitful and profitable every step of the way. Teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and help us to see Jesus all the more clearly. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. All right. Well, as I just mentioned, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter one today. So let's open her on up. Ephesians chapter one. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is just one of a number of epistles that he wrote in the New Testament, and it is good for us to spend a good season in Paul's writings in the New Testament. And we haven't actually been in any of Paul's letters in some time. Uh, As you know, we were in the book of Revelation for a while. We've been in other studies as we made our way through the New Testament, finishing with John's writings. And so it's kind of a treat, personally, to come back to one of Paul's letters. And Ephesians is one of those, in particular, that is rich in a grand diversity of ways. When we read uh, letters like 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, it's a rich blessing, but we know kind of what we're looking to get to in those letters. We love reading about things that have to do with prophecy in the end times and those kinds of things, although those brief letters are rich in other ways as well. Uh, Romans, of course, is a mountaintop experience from start to finish. It is lofty and a very, very high place to spend time in the Word of God. And and Ephesians, if I may, is similar in some respects in these opening verses. Uh, really, verses 1 through 14 uh, is a very high place to spend time, scripturally speaking. We're not going to get through all 14 verses today because that would pretty much be a disservice to the text. Uh, we're going to just start the epistle today. But you will find that as we make our way through this letter, that we're going to cover a gamut of really, really important things for us as believers. We will speak about, matter of fact, chapters one through three deal very heavily with the idea of what we believe, uh, our orthodoxy, the things that we believe, uh, teachings about our theology, the roots of our faith, what we believe, about the character and nature of God, his plans and purposes for us, salvation, these kinds of things, what grace is all about. Um, the last three chapters continue in some sense with some of those themes, but tend to focus more on living out those things, orthopraxy, if I can use a 25-cent word, Uh, the idea of how we live out those truths that we believe. Matter of fact, the word walk appears often in those last three chapters, and so it becomes an important thing for us to recognize that our faith is not simply about head knowledge. It's not just about what we know, but that what we know sinks deep into our hearts and ultimately causes us to become more and more like Jesus, that as we live our lives out, we're not just people that choose to believe one set of rules and regulations as opposed to some other faith's rules and regulations. Rather, instead, the book of Ephesians, like so much of Paul's writing, will not only teach us some really wonderful, deep and important things, but will also lead us into a deeper relationship with the glorious person of Christ himself. 
That's what our faith is about. It's not just that we know something. It's that we know him. And as we learn more about him, we fall more deeply in love with him, and we desire to walk with him all the more. The letter to the Ephesians is one of those very rich studies that brings us to that place. And so I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of uh, history about this letter, just so we kind of set a foundation here. The letter was written roughly about 63 AD. It's generally held it was written in 63 AD, which is about 10 years after Paul planted this church in Ephesus. Paul was there twice, actually. In Acts chapter 18, we see that he went to Ephesus but did not stay long, even though they uh, they asked him to. Uh, and in Acts chapter 19, on his third missionary journey, he ends up going back and planning the church. Uh, he spends at least two years there during that period of time, building that church, investing in the believers that they might grow in their faith. As a matter of fact, later on, he would ultimately have uh, instruction for Timothy to establish elders in this church, leaders, pastors. Um, the church in Ephesus actually has a very, very rich spiritual heritage. It's planted by Paul. They received this glorious letter uh, from Paul. Um, they ultimately have Timothy as an overseer in this area, ultimately, again, uh, building leaders and pouring into them that they might um, ultimately feed the flock of God, which Paul would eventually call the elders of the church of, uh, of Ephesus when he was away to gather to him that he might encourage them to stand firmly and defend the faith. Uh, because ultimately there would be wolves that would come in after his departure, after his death. Ravenous wolves would come in and not spare the flock. And so therefore they needed to shepherd up. If I can make up a term right there. But the, the idea was that they need to be prepared for all of those false teachings that were going to be coming and they would come. Matter of fact, when you read First and Second Timothy, you see a pretty significant amount of space given to this very subject. And this is Paul investing in Timothy, who will then invest in these leaders to prepare themselves for the kind of things that the enemy is going to bring to undermine the faith of, of, of those believers there. It's probably worth pointing out once again that when we talk about the church in Ephesus, um, we're talking probably not about any gatherings that resembled this. Now, by the way, it's kind of fun to be able to say that now because we've grown a little bit in the last couple of years. Two, three years ago, I would have been able to say that the church in Ephesus would have been a bunch of groups that looked like this, 25, 30, 40 people at most, because generally you would not want to bring a lot of attention to yourself with a large gathering as a believer in that time under Roman rule. Uh, if you get garnered attention to yourself, you could get arrested. Your pastor likely would be arrested and taken away because, after all, if you take the shepherd away, the sheep will likely scatter. And so, therefore, being a pastor in that day was a really tough job, not only because of the pastoring element, but because of the constant threat of arrest and imprisonment, as Paul himself uh, experienced quite frequently. Matter of fact, this letter, among uh, the letters to the Colossians, uh, Philippians, and also Philemon, were also written from prison. Uh, when Paul writes this letter, he's not, uh, he's not free. He's incarcerated in his Roman imprisonment. And this and likely at least two of the other letters, if not all three, uh, were taken during this time, uh, written by Paul during this time, uh, were written at this time, but were taken at this point and delivered to the various places that, uh, um, uh, that they were addressed to. Uh, and so when believers gathered together and when they would receive this letter, and I think it's kind of fun to imagine yourself. I'm not getting weird into visualization. I'm just saying it's kind of fun to think of what you might it might have been like to be a, a believer in the first century receiving this letter for the first time. Now, most of us have probably read this letter, if not studied it many times over the course of our Christian life. 
But imagine hearing these words for the first time from the Apostle Paul, receiving it from this this great man of God who has been used by God and has suffered much for God, who addressed a letter that would help me grow in my faith, that I might follow him as he follows Christ, that might help me to walk with Jesus in a in a, a full way with all of my heart and just give myself over to him. And what does that look like? Paul's instruction on these things is beautiful and wonderful, and he covers a number of different subjects, again, dealing with our theology, but also in terms of how we live. Things like spiritual warfare, things like marriage and family, um, all of these things are, are spoken to by the Apostle Paul in this letter. And so it's wonderfully rich and important that we dig into these things. That's why we're going to take our time and not just race through it in a survey kind of a way. Um, when uh, when Paul wrote this letter... Um, he was, again, in prison toward the end of his life. Uh, this is what's known as one of the prison epistles, along with the others I mentioned. Although Second uh, Timothy is also written while incarceration as well, while Paul was incarcerated. And these letters are among those that, uh, that express Paul's final investment in the church. Uh, it wouldn't be long from this point where he would be martyred under Caesar. Um, when you when you know your time is short, you tend to invest in those things that matter. Um, Philippians is generally considered the epistle of what theme? Joy, right. Most people generally tend to associate this idea with joy. That doesn't mean, though, that the letter is lighthearted. As a matter of fact, Paul speaks of joy from a personal place where he is kind of wishing he was dead. He was done. He wanted to go and be with the Lord, you know, and that kind of thing. But even in the midst of that, he could still speak of joy because it mattered that he speak of joy in that circumstance at that time as he knew his day was coming. Ephesians covers a gamut of subjects, Likely because Paul wanted to speak to these these subjects under, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit himself wanted Paul to talk about these things before Paul's candle went out, before he ultimately died for his faith. And so there's I say that because there's a weight and a gravity to what Paul talks about here. Even though the subjects we'll, we'll cover will no doubt talk about these things in instructive and sometimes even sort of a light way and and and, and that kind of thing at some points. Really, it's important to remember that as Paul talks about these things, it's really on the cusp of his going to see the Lord. It's not far away from that. Um, so why don't we go ahead, having sort of spoken about that, and read the first two verses, which is really about as far as we're going to get today. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, or in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul. Now, Paul's story, and again, I never like to assume that people know the background about Paul, so we're going to turn to a couple of passages here as we look at him. But Paul was originally known by the name Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul was a leader in Israel. He was among the religious leaders of the people. Uh, we don't know for sure because he's not mentioned in the Gospels, but it is possible that Saul was among those who cast his lot in with the demise of Jesus himself and his crucifixion. Um, this is somebody who, upon his 
upon the news of the resurrection, Saul essentially was insanely opposed to the Christian church. Uh, if you're not familiar with Paul's background, it probably is helpful to understand the massive transition that took place, the transformation that Jesus wrought in the heart of Saul to, to turn him from the most vicious, violent opposer of the Christian faith at the time to its most explosive evangelist, church planter, pastor, shepherd. He writes a third of the New Testament. Uh, this is a guy who did not start growing up in the church, per se, although I guess that's not entirely true. We would call it synagogue and that kind of thing in Paul's day. Paul became a leader among the Pharisees where he became, by his own sort of self-testimony and in, in, in his boasting about his background only for the sake of describing it as rubbish. But Saul was somebody that other Pharisees wanted to be like. This is a guy who was absolutely committed to keeping the law. Didn't mean he was perfect, but it meant if anyone kept the law and if anyone made it right when they didn't keep the law, Saul was the guy who was like the poster boy for this kind of thing. As a matter of fact, when we are first introduced to Saul, it's in Acts chapter 8 after uh, Stephen has been taken from waiting tables and is now standing before the religious leaders of Israel and bearing a testimony about their history and their consistent capacity to reject those that God has sent them. And finally, the crowd uh, that is gathered around him becomes so incensed at the testimony that he's giving for Christ that when he finally uh, begins to understand that he is literally moments from seeing the Lord in his own death right now, and he, and he begins to be stoned, he calls out to the Lord and sees him standing at the right hand of the Father and all this thing, and they stone him to death. And as they are, they're taking off their outer garments, like their, their robes per se, and they're laying them at the feet of this man called Saul. And Stephen dies as the first martyr of the church. And Saul, from that point on, goes on this vicious crusade to arrest and throw into prison uh, and to consent to the death of, of men and women who are claiming the name of Christ. Uh, by the way, it's interesting that it says men and women. Most of the time in the New Testament, you tend to see men being addressed because a, a woman generally was not counted when it came to things like testimony and those kinds of things. Also, the fact that, that women are mentioned in that likely speaks to the sort of dastardly nature of Paul at that time, of Saul at that time. He was taking no prisoners. He was going after anybody who claimed the name of Christ. That is Saul's beginning point. Turn to Acts chapter 9 for just a minute, because this is where the change happens. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 22. I'll be somewhat brisk just to get through it, but Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, which is what the church was called at that point, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will uh, be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there, th- uh, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm uh, he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And there he and, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I like that Ananias is pretty honest here. Are you sure? Are we talking about the same guy? Because this is a guy who has letters to come and persecute people. He's been dragging people off. This is this guy's bad news. Are, 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 this is who you want me to go meet. And I like the Lord's response. Obviously, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So Saul, in a moment, the Lord literally speaks to him directly. Saul is blinded by the experience in the midst of it, but he responds as he should. Lord, what would you have me do? Saul, you've been kicking against the goads. In other words, you've been trying to fight an uphill battle here. This is difficult. You're you're kicking against that which is, uh, it's difficult for you. And Saul recognizes this, and he comes to faith in that moment because he ultimately is then filled with the Holy Spirit during this encounter when he goes and sees Ananias who lays hands on him, prays for him, he receives his sight back, he uh, becomes a believer. And so from this point on, Saul, as we, if we were to turn to Galatians 1, we would see a brief sentence where it mentions how uh, Saul did not immediately at this point confer with other disciples, flesh and blood. He basically spent uh, the next little while presumably being taught directly from the Lord, because uh, he would speak of the gospel that Jesus gave him directly later in his writings. And so when he finally meets the disciples, Barnabas and uh, brings him in to meet the disciples, of course, they're nervous about this guy too, but Barnabas brings him to them. They ultimately give him the right hand of fellowship, and he becomes, um, as he would refer to himself later, as an apostle born out of due time, in, in, in due time. But he becomes one of them, essentially. And so Saul then, from that moment on, would consistently be followed around by those that would seek to undermine the gospel as he was sharing it. They would seek to turn around those who would hear what he had to say. He would be arrested. He would be stoned. Matter of fact, at one point, he would be stoned to death and he would come back from the dead. God would allow him to rise from the dead and ultimately be restored and continue his ministry. This is a guy who went through difficult hardships, shipwreck, rejection by friends and fellow laborers and all this kind of thing. 
he would ultimately call these things light afflictions. Um, and I don't think that's just Christian bravado or something like that. He considered them light afflictions compared to the glory that was yet to come. In the same way that in Hebrews it speaks about Christ himself despising the shame, but yet enduring it because of the glory that would follow. Like master, like disciple. Like master, like servant. And that's why Paul would say, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Again, this is not something that Paul said arrogantly. He said it as a teacher, as a shepherd, as a discipler. Paul was able to share from a very deep well in his ministry. And I don't want to get on a side trip here. I do, but I won't. Um, but, you know, you and I will go through very difficult things as believers. We will go through hardships. We will go through uphill struggles. We will experience the valley of the shadow of death. And it takes knowing him deeply to be able to say, Nevertheless, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It takes a level of maturity and development in our Christian lives that is only born in adversity to be able to respond to the Lord and give him the place that he wants in our lives to do what he will do with our lives. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 for just a moment. Um, yeah, First Corinthians, um, gosh, I say chapter 6, verse 20. Verse 19. Paul has been talking about sanctification, um, giving ourselves over to him uh, that he might have his way in us. And in verse 19, he goes, he finishes this thought before he moves into another subject. He finishes this thought by saying, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? Let's say that again. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. Um, to glorify God in your body means that you physically now, your personhood, you're his now. Okay? But I want to do this and I want to do that. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying don't make your plans, don't go on a vacation, whatever kind of a thing. But when God wants to do something in your life, we have to remember that we're his. As believers, as Christians, as those who bear the name of Christ... We're his now. We're not the world's anymore, and we're not even our own anymore. We're his. Which means if he wants to direct our lives in a certain way, down a certain path, we want to learn to be okay with those things. It's interesting. There's a point at which Paul, in 2 Corinthians, describes a scenario in which he was being buffeted by a messenger of Satan. And he prayed three times. It says he pled three times with the Lord, deliver me from this. And Jesus said, no. (gasps) He said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. Whose weakness? Paul's weakness. What was Paul's response to that? 
He said, well, in that case, I will choose to be weak in every circumstance that Christ might be magnified. Now, I'm not saying this, by the way, to lay a guilt trip on you. Some of you are thinking, oh, great, how can I live up to that? Hey, you know, I'm thinking that too. Um, I'm saying it because this is the man who wrote this letter. This is the mindset and place, personally, that he wrote this letter from. He was the Lord's, and therefore, Jesus, whatever you want to take me through, that's what I will go through, because I know that your character is good. I know that you have a larger purpose than just what's going on right now, and you're going to accomplish something through this. Therefore, I will acknowledge that I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. Therefore, I will glorify you, Lord Jesus, with my body. Now, for some of you who have gone through recently and are going through things right now, that can be a very, very sobering pill to swallow. But let me encourage you in it. God has not forsaken you and did not forsake you. It is entirely possible that you are learning something right now or did learn something through that experience that brought you to a place that you now recognize you would never have gotten to had you not gone through it. In other words, there's value in the valley. There's value in places other than the mountaintop. And at the end of the day, you and I exist because he made us and he created us. We are his children because through Christ, he has bought and paid for us, delivering us from our sin and its penalty. And therefore, we're no longer our own, we're his. Again, that's not said in a callous, cold, shallow way. But this is the level of depth that God wants us to grow to, grow to. This is why he brings us through the valleys. This is why we experience the difficulties. When Paul shared the words that he's going to share in this letter and any of the letters that we see him writing, again, when he talks about his light afflictions, they weren't light afflictions. They would have wiped most of us out. He did actually die at one point. And God brought him back. But this is the well that you now have to draw from. When Paul speaks about comforting others with the comfort wherewith you yourself have been comforted or we ourselves have been comforted, that's not pat on the back kind of stuff. Hey, bro, hang in there. That's true, bro, hang in there. But there's so much more than that that comes from somebody who moves from sympathy to empathy from simply feeling bad for someone's circumstance to having a sense of what it's like to be in a very difficult circumstance. Uh, I'll share with you, um, I, I hesitate to share this because it is a story about our own life, but I'll, I'll just share it by way of example because I, I found it to be a blessing when it finally unfolded. Um, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but for those who haven't, um, when Julie and I and our daughter Nina moved here from Illinois in 2007, uh, we got, we moved here in pretty good shape. We prepared for it. We got here, you know, paid off debt, those kinds of things, did everything we could before we made our move. And then the bottom fell out, totally fell out. And we went into a tailspin for about two and a half, three years. That was excruciating. Um, now everyone goes through things and, and, you know, this probably wouldn't compare to other people's excruciating trials and that kind of thing, but it was an excruciating trial for us. And, Afterward, after the Lord brought us out of it, I found myself having a conversation with a fellow pastor friend, uh, and he was going through an excruciating trial. It was different than ours, 
but it was his and his family's, and they were going through something very difficult. And I remember us talking about it, and I remember saying something to him that I would never have had the wherewithal to say three years earlier. And I will tell you, and I will, I guess, apologize to any of you who've been around for a long time. Um, there's a way to minister like a doctor who says, take two and call me in the morning. There's a way to pastor that way too. Someone goes through a hard thing. You throw a couple Bible verses at them, tell them to go home and pray about it and trust the Lord and let me know when it passes, you know? And, uh, and so I, I know I've done that in the past. I know there have been days when that's in my inexperience and my lack of difficulties that I would have responded that way and did. Not anymore. Not anymore. And we were talking that morning, this pastor friend of mine and I, he was talking about his experience. And I just found myself telling him that, you know, as a pastor, you and I are called to minister to people on all kinds of different levels. And some of them are really difficult. Sometimes people go through trials and they just don't know what to do. And you and I don't know what to do. But there's a difference between ministering to someone like you read it out of a book if you know what I mean by that, I'm not saying like you just read out of the Bible. I'm saying if you just like you just throw a method at it and try and deal with an issue without really dealing with it, there's a difference between that and ministering like you've actually been there. You're, you and I now have gone through things that make us different. God has used it. Now, in retrospect, I would never want to go through it again. Lord, please don't make me so hard headed that I have to learn it that way or whatever it was. I don't want to go through it again. But I would, understanding now the value that comes through it. I don't want it, but I see the wisdom in it. I'm not tooting my horn because there's probably a lot of you in this room that could describe a very similar kind of thing, and you wouldn't want to go through it again. But you realize now you're different fundamentally because you have. That's where Paul comes from. That's where he digs from when he talks about these things. None of these things are actually light. None of the things he's talking about theologically didn't first come at a cost. But now he can share about these things in a way that is much deeper and and much more impacting, I think, because of his experience. We can look at him and say, okay, well, this guy, wow, I can listen to this guy. And so he shares these things from his experience. Um, And I guess I'm going to jump back into the text here, or we're not going to get through verse 2. Um. But Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, an apostle, a messenger, um, uh, an emissary, a delegate. Uh, this word carries multiple kinds of definitions there. But the idea there uh, of an apostle is a messenger. And, of course, we gain from this because of his communicating with people, his writing of these letters, that he is a messenger on behalf of the Lord. And when we say apostle, that's what we generally mean. Now, I am of the belief there are no apostles on the level of a Paul or or Jesus' original apostles today like there were then. Uh, In the most general sense, and I can say this because there are those in Scripture in the New Testament that are also called apostles, people like Barnabas. And I think at one point, Timothy, I think, is called an apostle in that. But So there's a general sense in which a messenger, someone, uh, a delegate on, on behalf of the Lord, you could use that term. But in terms of apostolic authority, like the original disciple or the original apostles and Paul, I don't believe those folks are on the scene anymore today. No one else is getting scripture today. Nobody's speaking with apostolic authority that everybody in the church needs to listen to. There's none of that kind of thing. 
But Paul is one of those that God used and gave that kind of authority to in order to instruct and to lead by example the church of God. Um, and so um, he's an apostle. And of course, again, we read in Acts chapter 9 when he not only is saved and even commissioned, ultimately, to, as it says, to Gentiles, to kings, and also to the children of God, uh, the children of Israel, I should say. And so his ministry is a broad one. Although later on in Acts chapter 13, we see that he really takes on this role of being an apostle to the Gentiles. Whereas Peter is sort of uh, becomes known as this apostle to the Jews, to Israel and that. Uh, so Paul's ministry is focused more on the Gentiles. However, it is interesting that everywhere he goes, every town he goes to, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue. There's almost no exceptions to that. It's just uh, everywhere he goes, he starts by going to the Jews, trying to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ, their Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. And so his ministry is a broad one, and he, of course, will, as we read the book of Acts, he does ultimately stand before kings and rulers, uh, and Jesus uses him in those circumstances. We see in, um, uh, and again, in the book of Acts that he becomes a missionary. Uh, we know of at least uh, three of the missionary journeys that Paul took. Uh, two of them, uh, he visited Ephesus. The first he was there visiting, the second, uh, which he planted the church. And so... Um, Paul, again, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, which means God determined this for Paul. This is his call upon Paul's life and whom the Lord calls, he also equips. Now, I would say, again, without going on too much of a tangent, that God also has a purpose for you and for me. Now, we're not called to be apostles like Paul was, but every one of us has a calling in our lives to serve him in some sense. Uh, on some level, in some capacity. And from the Lord's perspective, they are all meaningful and they all serve a purpose in him ultimately accomplishing the purposes he has in this life and in this world, ultimately for the sake of the gospel and his glory. And so Paul is an apostle by the will of God. Uh, and of course, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, this, to this letter is written to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, in some of the earliest manuscripts, the term, the words in Ephesus are missing. They're not there. And that has led some to believe that this letter is possibly, uh, was intended to be written as sort of a cyclical kind of a letter, a letter that was intended to be read to a number of churches in Asia Minor. Uh, it's interesting that someone else wrote a letter to the Ephesians uh, and also to a number of other churches in Asia Minor. And at this point now, it was about 50 weeks ago we read them. But it was the Lord himself uh, in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Uh, this church, years later, would receive a letter from the Lord at the, by the hand of John. Uh, again, this church has a rich heritage. By that time, however, uh, there are some issues that Jesus points out that he wants to deal with. But Ephesus is the prominent city, the largest city among those cities in Asia Minor, at least at this point when, when Paul is writing. It is a place where the goddess Diana, or Artemis, as she's variously known, is worshipped. Uh, it is into this place where the worship of, of Diana uh, is, is practiced uh, that Paul plants a church, a body of believers. And so this paganistic idea that is, that is prominent and, and just pervasive throughout the city is the ground upon which had Paul had to work and to sow these seeds to ultimately plant a church. Um, but um, this is the place where the letter ultimately becomes most associated with. There are those that believe this may have been the letter that Paul refers to as the letter to the Laodiceans uh, that he refers to in Colossians. 
Uh, and plus these two letters, Colossians and Ephesians, are all often compared with each other. They're actually similar in some ways. Um, but anyway, later on, it becomes mostly associated with the church in Ephesus, but it is likely that this letter initially was written uh, to a broader audience than just the church in Ephesus. So that being said, um, we certainly don't have any problem reading their mail. So, uh, But to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, the idea of and faithful in Christ Jesus uh, is a natural adjective that goes with saint. Uh, a saint is somebody who belongs to the Lord and is faithful. Let me take a minute on saint. Um, I grew up in a, in a church. I grew up Catholic. Uh, some of you did as well. The idea of a saint was a very different kind of a person. Uh, a saint was somebody who was dead, had passed away by now, and you could look at their life and see that there was an extremely high degree of holiness I think, strictly speaking, miraculous events needed to be also included in their life in some capacity. But a saint was somebody who was untouchable. You lose something, call St. Christopher. This is your guy. Uh, this happens, this is your saint. And there's a saint of everybody. But they're different. They're not like you and I. They're special. They've achieved something that normal folks like you and me don't achieve. That's the word saint in that understanding. Hopefully I didn't scare you right there. That's not what we believe here. Uh, And that's not what the Bible teaches, by the way. Uh, When the word saint is used in Scripture, it is referring most often, 99% of the time, it is referring to people who are alive when it's being used. In other words, it refers to believers. The word saint, or the word under it, hagios, there is the idea of being separated from. Uh, those who have been separated by God out of the world. And it's important that we understand they are separated by God. Not by their own holy behavior. They're separated by God at the point of salvation, which as we talked about a couple weeks ago in our, uh, at our outdoor service at the park there when we were in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, all of this is from God. It is He who separates us ultimately from darkness to light, from being lost to being found. And so a saint is not somebody who has achieved a high level of holy practical living. It is somebody who is set apart by God to himself, not just for service, but at all. Like you're a believer, you're a saint. So like St. Lauren, for example, right here, or St. Julie, or St. Lee, you know, St. Lee. How does he live? He lives saintly. But, you know, sorry, that was the best I could do off the top of my head. But so, but the idea of a saint is somebody who is called apart by God as his. Now, Someone who is called apart by God, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, and who is a disciple of Christ, that does bring with it, naturally, a life that reflects that. There is a work of the Holy Spirit that happens in a believer where we become sanctified. Same root word there. The idea of being further set apart by the Holy Spirit, and that finds expression in the lives that we live for example, uh, my life was different before I was a Christian. And there are those here who knew me before I was a Christian and could testify to that. It's different now. And it's not just because I'm trying so hard to live a good life and put on a good front. It's because the Lord has changed me. He not only saved me, but he has been working in my life just like he's been working in yours. If you are a believer, you are positionally fundamentally different from the moment of salvation. Practically speaking, that is a work called sanctification that takes place over the course of your life until the day we go and see the Lord. And so it goes together 
But we need to make sure we understand that there is a difference between the practical daily growing in sanctification and the moment that you and I are set apart as his. We go from being lost to being saved. And that is who a saint is. Somebody who is no longer lost, but is now found and in Christ. And so to the saints, those who have been set apart by God, those who are believers, and of course, therefore, are faithful. They do walk with the Lord in that kind of thing. Again, this speaks both in terms of belief, but also faithfulness as well. So now uh, he goes on to say, and this is where we're going to finish in verse two today. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. You will see this expression used by Paul throughout his writings. Grace and then peace. Grace speaks of favor. Uh, and of course, when we speak of the gospel, grace speaks of unmerited favor, favor that is simply bestowed and given, not because of any works we do. And this is an enormous point that we not just want to recognize as true in all of Paul's description of grace, but you and I need to make sure personally we understand this. Grace is something that is freely given, lavished by God alone, because he is gracious, not because we've earned it. Now, again, as a Catholic, I grew up very different in this. We earned grace in Catholicism. We didn't actually, but we believed we could. We believed that we merited grace based on our acts or our acts of contrition or any of these kinds of things. Now, some of you didn't grow up Catholic, and, and that's fine, but chances are at some point you had some version of that kind of thinking yourself. And you might even today, that somehow I need to earn God's favor. Now, it doesn't help that our culture and society drill this into our heads. You're worth it. You know, achieve, work hard and reap the fruits of your labors and this kind of thing. There is a point or a place where that just makes sense. You you go to work, you get uh, a paycheck, right? You do well at your job, you get a raise, you get a promotion or something like that. Geez, Santa Claus for crying out loud, right? Talk about a works-based system, right? Hey, if you're good, you get toys. If not, you get coal. You know, there's no grace involved in that. Santa's not a type of Jesus. Santa's a type of the law, you know? So it's like, you know, but there's a place in which we understand that. There's a context for that kind of thing, right? But when it comes to the gospel, grace speaks of unmerited favor from start to finish, right? We do live lives that reflect the character and nature of Christ because we are saved, because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Because we've been set apart, not in order to be set apart, not in order to achieve some standing in grace. In other words, we look at grace, biblically speaking, as that which we are responding to by the way we live our lives, not something we are achieving or earning because of the way we live our lives. And that's an enormous difference. Um, and I would go finish this point uh, by saying that If a gospel is presented that requires you to do something to earn God's favor, that is a false gospel. And that's a strong thing to say, isn't it? But I'm saying it because that's what the Bible teaches. Matter of fact, I will invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You're in Ephesians chapter 1. That's an easy thing. Just turn one page to your right. Verses 8 and 9. And of course, when we get to chapter two, we'll, we'll develop this a lot more thoroughly. But notice what Paul says here, 
uh, in the midst of this discussion. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, could it be clearer? You have been saved by grace, through faith, through belief, which Paul in, in Romans 4 says is not a work. By belief, by trusting, by putting your faith in, you receive the grace of God. It is given to you. The finished work of Christ is now is now appropriated to you. It's given to you. You are now inside the grace of God by faith. But that grace exists because of what Jesus did, and it is given by the hand of God to you and I. No works involved on our part. I, you know, we, we, we do hit this one pretty hard because our human nature tends to be the other way. Well, but I'm, I'm a good person. No, you're not. I mean, I mean, you might, you might behave well. If that's what you mean, sure. But none of us is good. Fundamentally. And this is an important thing for us too. A lot of very important, we're in verse two. Look how many important things we're talking about already. Just imagine what the rest of the letter is going to be like. You and I are fundamentally, and not just you and me, all people who have ever lived except for one. All people who have ever lived are fundamentally not good. We are sinful by nature. We sin because that's what we are. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because we're sinners. This is what we are. And left to ourselves, we would die that way and be in an eternity apart from God because of that. But for God's grace, in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How's the only way that happens? Him taking our sin upon himself, not us earning it. And so we say grace that's what we're talking about. And without that, there is no peace. That's why Paul always uses it in this order. That's why he always says it this way. And you can search out each of the letters. He says it, and he says it this way. I mean, he adds mercy a couple of times, not surprisingly when he's talking to Pastor Timothy. Uh, but the idea of grace preceding peace is the pattern of the New Testament. There is no peace with God apart from the grace of God. In other words, you cannot be right with God apart from his grace being given to you. Likewise, there's also no experiencing the peace of God without grace. You might experience freedom from stress for a little while as a non-believer. As a non-believer, it's not like I lived in a constant state of panic or, or whatever. I experienced what I would have called peace as a non-believer from time to time, and usually there was some substance that helped aid that. But generally speaking... You can feel a measure of something like that, but there's no actual peace of God apart from the grace of God, which means that in the midst of the most trying of circumstances, which means under the heaviest of weights, you can experience God's peace or the peace that God himself experiences in the midst of your circumstances, all because you have received his grace. If you know for sure 
And this is true, by the way, if you're a believer, all your sin was paid for at the cross, past, present, and future. There remains no penalty or condemnation. What does Paul say in, in Romans 8, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No condemnation. How much is left? None. There's none, right? So therefore, there is no condemnation awaiting you and I. Again, this sounds crazy, right? Because I know me, you know you, I know you, you know me. The idea of no condemnation? Boy, I wow, really? Yeah, really. It's really that amazing. That is why grace is considered amazing. And once you understand that, you understand that what comes with that is the ability to live at peace. Because God's grace is there, not only to separate us unto him, but to be that upon which we stand as well. We stand upon the grace of God, the accomplished, finished purposes of Christ. It sustains us. It's also that which, by the way, we're called to extend to one another. That finds its way out by us being gracious to one another. It means treating each other with favor, like God treated us and treats us, right? It means, even when they don't deserve it, unmerited, treating people with favor, with kindness, with graciousness. Jesus obviously put our interests ahead of his own well-being in that he went to the cross for us. And he suffered and died for us. That is an act of his grace. That is graciousness on display. Be that toward one another. This is what grace and the peace that we experience as a result of it is priceless. If we know we have a right standing with God, we can be at peace because we're at peace with him and therefore we can experience his peace. There's no more animosity between you and God. You may harbor animosity against God. Something may have happened in your life that has caused you to back away from him in some way. But you need to know that God has no animosity toward you anymore as his child. You are free from it. There is no condemnation. There's tranquility now between you. And of course, this is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to get into verse 3 next time. And um, I'll invite you to read this letter. Uh, it's only six chapters. You can read it a few times along the way. Feel free to read it as often as you like as we make our way through it. The more familiar it gets to us, the better. And so as we take our time to go through it, we'll talk about these things as they unfold. So that being said, let me close in prayer. And uh, I guess I should say, I know with Revelation we did this. Does anybody have any questions before we close? Who's, oh, Stephanie, yeah, go ahead. About the what? The city of Ephesus. What? I'm sorry. Oh, well, the city of Ephesus was a large city. It was a prominent city at the time. Uh, Diana, or the statue, or the... Uh, what constituted the, the worship of Diana was based on a, uh, I believe it, at the heart of it was a stone. But the, the, the worship in this, the image to Diana, I think is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But it was a place of, uh, deep, um, co- of, of a lot of commerce. It was a place that was a metropolitan area. This was not a small town by any definition. This would have been something like in Atlanta or something, basically, by today's standards and that kind of thing. 
Um, I forget how long they said it took to walk through it, but I remember reading that one time before. But it was large and it was highly populated. And because it was highly populated, because it was a place where a lot of commerce and also philosophy uh, was was taught and studied in that. Matter of fact, the uh, um, uh, oh gosh, was the school of Tyrannus considered to be there? I think as well. But um, uh, anyway, so it was it was a very large metropolitan area that that ultimately was centered around the worship of Diana, which again makes it a very uh, helps us understand the difficulty by which and in which that church was planted. Which again, when we say a church, we don't mean a single large gathering. We mean a bunch of smaller gatherings that ultimately were overseen by by local pastors. And then Timothy had the role of training these pastors and ultimately being sort of the bishop of the area. So, um, I mean, beyond that, though, um, you know, I mean, it's it's like many of the larger cities of the ancient world and that kind of thing. So, um, any other good question? Any others? I just want to. Oh. <laughs> uh, Ephesus was one of the seven churches in Asia Minor uh, that the letters to, uh, that Jesus wrote to in the Book of Revelation. Yes. Did. Uh... Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, Pastor oh, we got Ryan. the microphone. Thank when you. Was, uh, when did um, Saul, Saul or Paul have that run-in with um, the Lord on the road to Damascus? What year approximately? Oh, okay. Well, um, ooh, that's a good question. Um, there are, I want to say this, uh, gosh, well, I think it would have been, oh, shoot. Does anybody know for sure? I Is it, have you got it there? Oh, look at that. It's in the women's study book. <laughs> Apparently there's a resource on my shelf I need to get, or I need to get on my shelf. 34, okay. 34, 34 AD. Um, I was going to say 38, actually, but uh, uh, 34 AD. Um, now, you can sort of put together a timeline because Paul talks about, again, in Galatians chapter 1, uh, his... Uh, Coming to Christ, a period of time of 14 years before he ultimately met up in Jerusalem with the other apostles and those kinds of things. So you can begin to put a timeline together based on his death and kind of work your way back. And apparently comes to 34 AD. Thank you for that. Um, all right. Anyone else? All right. Oh, Alonzo. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, the scales were when they fell off of Paul's eyes and he was... Um Baptized. Yeah. Is there any recording of the apostles being baptized? Of the apostles being baptized? Yeah. Oh, uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, I think it is generally presumed, uh, in part, uh, there's an early writing that goes, is generally, well, is often supposed to be written in the 200s called the Didache or the Didache. Uh, or the writings of the apostles, or the instruction of the apostles. It was very likely not actually written by the apostles. It was probably written later by one of the um, by uh, the various theories. But but baptism among the early church was presumed, and so it is unlikely they wouldn't have been, especially when Jesus gave the command, you know, to do that. And so um, my presumption would be we know it says obviously Paul was baptized there, and so I think that indicates the general practice of the early church. So. Um, I don't see it recorded, but I, I'm sure they were. That's a safe presumption, but it is a presumption in fairness. So, yeah, anyone else? We'll do this from time to time. I don't know about every single week based on the time and what's going on, but uh, I do want to make sure that we open the floor because we do see this as a discipleship ministry. 
In other words, it, it's not just me talking to you for an hour. The idea is that we want to make sure that we're growing and learning these things. And so from time to time, we'll, we'll open the floor for this kind of stuff. But if there are no more today, then let me go ahead and pray. And uh, we'll go ahead and close with a song in, in worship. Father, we're very grateful for you giving us this word. And we just pray that as we make our way through it, that you would help us to grow in our understanding of your truth. We thank you that uh, Paul uh, uh, was used so much by you. But at the end of the day, he is just a man whom you chose and equipped and sent to, to, to do the work you called him to. So we take encouragement in knowing that, Father, we don't have to be special for you to use us. We just have to be set apart by you. So thank you that you've done this uh, in, in our lives. We thank you that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and that by your grace we are now saved. So, Father, we pray that as we learn to walk with you each day, as we spend time in prayer and in reading your word and in fellowship together and and getting together and sharing, uh, breaking bread and these kinds of things, as was the practice of the early believers, that we too would just see you helping us to grow and investing in us and your spirit, just being able to bring to the surface things that need to change, bringing to our hearts and our minds a deeper understanding of these truths, and that ultimately our feet would be willing to walk them out. Thank you, Lord, so much for your grace and the peace that accompanies it, all because of Jesus. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand together? Let's sing grace greater than our sin.
all by God's grace. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. Again, if you would, take a minute and sign up in the back for the various things we were talking about, especially the men's retreat. Want to make sure we get that uh, together. But God bless you all. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.